0: Um, Our goal is not just to look at sin, but that as we do look at sin uh, and the ugliness of sin, the beauty of God's grace will shine all the brighter. Let me start by just asking you some questions. Can God forgive a man like Hitler? Can God forgive a woman who abused her child to such an extent that the little boy died of his injuries? Can God forgive a murderer? Can God forgive you if you've had an affair, you've had an abortion, if you've had, or if you've abused your children, abused drugs, if you've been involved with homosexual activity, uh, if you've been involved in the practice of witchcraft or Satanism? You know, most of us would answer yes, at least in theory. And if we were talking to somebody who was hurting, we would assure them of God's forgiveness available in Jesus. But do we really believe it? And do we believe it when it applies to us? I've had many people in my office, people who've sat in the very chair you're probably sitting in right now, who've told me as much as they want to believe it, they just can't. These are people who know the theology, who've probably assured others of God's grace but who somehow feel like they have gone too far. Their sin is too destructive, too painful, too damaging, that God could never forgive them. God could never forgive their homosexual behavior, their their abuse, their adultery. This morning I want to look at uh, a man who went too far, a man who the writers of Scripture all refer to as the most wicked king that Judah ever had. In fact, a guy that was so corrupt that his corruption, his sin, led 70 years after his life to the destruction of his entire nation. The man's name is Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah, Second Chronicles 33. Now, for those of you who are uh, keeping track, he is uh, the... Descendant of Jehoshaphat, nine generations later, about 200 years after Jehoshaphat, so that puts him at about 650 A.D. Manasseh's father, Hezekiah, was a great reformer. In fact, we are told that he was the most godly king since King David. Chapter 31, verse 20. This is what Hezekiah did throughout Judah, doing what was good and right and faithful before the Lord his God. In everything he undertook, in the service of God's temple and in obedience to the law and commands, with his whole heart he sought his God and worked. And so he prospered. You know, what a great dad to have. But as Hezekiah prospered and got older, he began to just coast in his relationship with God. We're told that he... He began to take God for granted. He began to take God's grace for granted. In fact, at one point in chapter 32, we're told that uh, he did not respond to the kindness shown to him, but instead his heart became proud. Somehow he started thinking that all of his prosperity, all the peace that his country was experiencing, were somehow his doing. Again, he had lost sight of the fact that everything that he had was God, by God's grace, his, his, his uh, passion for God disappeared, his, his dependence on God had loosened. Unfortunately, this isn't at all uncommon for us. You know, Many of us pursued God aggressively in our youth and threw ourselves into ministry and, and, and put his kingdom above everything else. But now that we've settled down, settled in, We forget that everything we have is by God's grace. We forget the pain and the emptiness of living life without Him. So we begin to take Him for granted. Now this doesn't need to be, this shouldn't be. As we grow older, our bodies will slow down. But that doesn't mean our, our zeal needs to. And why should our love grow cold? Why should we sit down in the middle of the track in the last lap? And one of the, uh, the, the great gifts that God has given this congregation is the godly, elderly men and women that He's given to us, men and women who still burn with a love for the Lord, like, uh, like Hardin Young, our elder, who spent this summer over in Bulgaria on a summer project. Now right now he's in, in Germany uh, making plans for new and exciting ministry there with our missionaries. Now he, His body is definitely slowing down but his love for the Lord hasn't waned at all. Or women like uh, Harriet Clark, who prays for us persistently and incessantly. Uh, she, she fights this most important battle on our behalf. As I, as I thought about this, I could name dozens, dozens of men and women that God has given this congregation, men and women in their 60s, 70s, and even 80s, whose passion... For the Lord whose heart for the Lord has not waned but unfortunately Hezekiah would not have been numbered among them like I said for the last 15 years of his life he just began to coast in his walk with the Lord and during those 15 years is when Manasseh was born. Now Manasseh I'm sure had heard all the stories of God's great deliverances of his father's trust in God, But what he saw was a dad whose attention had moved on to other things. See, Manasseh enjoyed the benefit of a a godly home and a godly nation, but he never understood, really, never got to see where that came from, that relationship with God and that dependence on God. And so he took all of that for granted. He didn't realize that that wasn't the norm, that everybody didn't experience this. And he took it for granted, and the result was disastrous. He destroyed himself and his whole nation. When he was 12, his father Hezekiah died, and he became the king. Starting with verse 1 of chapter 33. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 55 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, following the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. He rebuilt the high places his father Hezekiah had demolished. He also erected altars to the Baals and made Asherah poles. He bowed down to all the starry hosts and worshipped them. He built altars in the temple of the Lord, of which the Lord said, My name will remain in Jerusalem forever. In both courts of the temple of the Lord, he built altars to all the starry hosts. He sacrificed his sons in the fire in the valley of Ben-Hinnom, practiced sorcery, divination, and witchcraft, consulted mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the eyes of the Lord, provoking him to anger. You know, what an incredible list of wickedness. Manasseh didn't just drift away from God. He ran. He charged away from God. He threw himself into sin, into evil, with a passion. Unfortunately, this isn't really all that unusual for a young person who is who is rebelling against God. God who is running away from a Christian home and a Christian heritage. You know, even the, the normal breaks that seem to be there on your typical unbeliever seem to be missing. There seems to be a, an urgency about their, their pursuit of sin. Almost a fear that if they slow down, God will catch them before they've done it all. Before they've tasted all the forbidden fruit. In this situation, the young man who was running from God also happened to be a king. And the results for his country were disastrous. The entire nation became wicked. Verse 9, But Manasseh led Judah and the people of Jerusalem astray. So they did more evil than the nations the Lord had destroyed before the Israelites. See, God had driven the Canaanites out of the land because the Canaanites had become so corrupt. Things had become so horrible. Human life so cheap. People being destroyed and trashed that God just had to get rid of those people and drove them out of the land and now God's own people were worse than those people, than the Canaanites and the Sodomites and the Phoenicians, the most wicked people known. Let's take a closer look at Manasseh's depravity before we avert our eyes. We're told that he rebuilt the places to worship the Baals and the Asherah. Now the the Baals... Baal just simply means Lord. It, it was the Canaanite word for Lord, and it could apply to, to any number of, of their deities. But originally it applied to the Canaanite god Merodach. He was the high god, the god of fertility. And his uh, his consort, his sexual partner, was Asherah. And these Asherah poles that he's talking about were huge, enormous, obscene phallic symbols. Huge poles stuck into the earth to represent, to symbolize the sexual union between these deities. And the way that these deities were worshipped is the worshiper came to the temple or came to a holy site and engaged in sexual intercourse with with temple prostitutes. Now, this uh, was originally, apparently, uh, these prostitutes were women, but by the time of Manasseh's day, They were men that had evolved to homosexual intercourse with male called prostitutes. We're told that he revived the worship of the hosts of heaven. These are the gods of the sun and the stars and the moon. And and, and these are are the same gods that the Greeks worshipped under different names. uh, Zeus and Diana and Apollos. We're told that Manasseh built altars to these gods right in the temple grounds right in the place that was set aside exclusively for the worship of the true God. See, Manasseh, this was a conscious attempt on his part to drive God out and to get rid of any uncomfortable reminders of God's holiness. We're also given a list of other practices that he did, communicating with the dead, using drugs for religious experiences, trying to tell the future Uh, by consulting spirits and spiritists, consulting spirit guides, experts on the spirits. And then we're told, I think, the hardest thing for us to handle, that Manasseh practiced human sacrifice. On several occasions, he sacrificed one of his own sons to the Baals. Now, this Baal, this uh, Canaanite god that they used to sacrifice their sons to, was called Moloch. Let me read a translation from an ancient Greek historian describing a sacrifice to Moloch. the image of Moloch was a human figure with a bull's head and outstretched arms to receive the children destined for sacrifice. The image made of metal was heated red hot by a fire kindled within and the children laid on its arms rolled off into the fiery pit below. In order to drown out the cries of the victims, flutes were played and drums were beaten. And mothers stood by without tears or sobs to give the impression of the voluntary character of the offering. See, the mothers had to stand there and were not allowed to cry or to show any, any remorse or any sadness. Now, I'm sorry, again, to go into so much graphic detail, but I, I have a reason. First of all, I want you to catch a glimpse a taste of the horror of Manasseh's life, of how wicked he had become. If anyone had gone too far, this guy had. But I also want you to think about it, unless you think this is all too weird, all this witchcraft and human sacrifice and all of this weird stuff, I want you to realize that really the only difference between what was happening in his day and what happens in our day is the religious veneer you strip that away not a whole lot has changed if you look at the way people live now they don't worship uh, these other gods they worship the god of themselves and of pleasure but it's pretty much the same these Asherah poles would have been protected by our first amendment rights to free expression and art homosexuality promiscuity is rampant. Drugs are used for pleasure and profit. Uh, Spirit guides are consulted. Anywhere in this country, these people are readily available. They advertise in your phone book. Some areas of our country, there are more professional spiritists than there are professional ministers. People don't worship the stars much anymore. They worship Mother Earth, nature. And how many people read and follow their horoscopes. Again, not a whole lot has really changed. See, the attractiveness of all of these things is that they just seem more dramatic, more exciting than the mundane business of walking with God. And these things all promise to meet our needs while leaving us free, leaving us in control of our lives, leaving us free from ever having to look at our sins or our need for God. But these promises, as we'll see later, these promises to meet our needs, these promises to leave us free, are all lies. And what about the uh, sacrifice of their babies? Well, why do you think they did that? They did it because they were told that was the key to a prosperous life. How could those women stand by and not shed a tear? Because their society told them that this was the thing to do, that this was the key to the quality of their life being improved, to the parents' lives being improved. They would gain materially. Their crops would prosper. Their lives would be enriched. You say, how can these women sacrifice their children to such a shallow reason? Well, today, a million and a half Children are sacrificed through abortion to virtually the very same reason, to enhance the quality of life of the parents. There's no idol being worshipped, but the bottom line is the same. The, the parents benefit at the child's expense. Again, I'm sorry to be brutal and, and to uh, to look at these things so starkly. I don't mean to be brutal or dramatic. I just want us to realize that the wickedness of today, if it were recorded in scripture, would be just as shocking, probably more so. And that the, that many of us have gone just about as far as Manasseh. Many of us are are, are shocked. By the horror of our own sins. And some of you may be feeling like you have gone too far, like Manasseh had. How could God possibly forgive you? But I want to take a look at what God does with Manasseh, starting verse 10. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and to his people, but they paid no attention. See, God tried to call him back, but Manasseh wouldn't listen. Manasseh knew what he was doing. He knew that it was wrong, but he was determined. He had made up his mind. He was not going to be mastered by anyone. He was going to be his own man, independent and free. And listening to God felt like slavery. But what Manasseh is about to learn is what Bob Dylan sang in in his song. You've got to serve somebody. You see, we are never without a master. Either we will serve God or we will serve sin. Serving sin is slavery indeed, though it looks like freedom. And serving God is freedom indeed, though it looks like slavery. The only way we will know true freedom is to willingly accept the yoke of slavery to God. Like I said, this was a lesson that Manasseh had yet to learn, and so God, out of his love, out of his grace, teaches Manasseh. Verse 11 So the Lord brought against them the army commanders of the king of Assyria, who took Manasseh prisoner, put a hook in his nose, bound him with bronze shackles, and took him to Babylon. In his distress, he sought the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. And when he prayed to him, the Lord was moved by his entreaty and listened to his plea so that he brought him back to Jerusalem and to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that he was, or excuse me, that the Lord is God. There are several things I want to look at in what we just read. The first was that it was God's grace that brought on the disaster of the Assyrian uh, attack, the Assyrian invasion. It is God's grace that interrupts our headlong plunge into sin. It doesn't always feel like it, but that is God's love. In the book of Hosea, God talks about strewing our path with thorns. About a year ago, uh, my wife Becky was trying to save my daughter Jessica's gerbil from uh, a cat that had it in its mouth. She saw the cat heading out across this field and so she gave chase barefoot. Unfortunately, the field was just full of those goat head thorns. And even though she loved Jessica and wanted to save her gerbil, she couldn't go on. Her feet were bleeding and full of thorns. Well, the picture's the same, that God's people running from God, Barefoot, uh, running toward destruction. And God, out of His mercy and out of His love, strews the path with vicious thorns to stop us. And we may curse those thorns, and we will probably curse God because of the pain in our feet. But it is His mercy that stops us. If God hadn't stopped Manasseh, Manasseh would have continued to try to live the lies. He would have got more and more miserable. He would have got deeper and deeper into the horror of sin, destruction. See, the worst thing that God can do to us is to just let us go. And if your feet are full of thorns and you're cursing the thorns and you're cursing God, stop and realize this is your chance to turn. That's why it's happening. The second thing I want to observe is what we mentioned before. In his effort to be free of God, Manasseh ended up with a hook through his nose and brass shackles on his, his hands and his feet. See, what happened to Manasseh physically is exactly what happens to us spiritually. The freedom that sin promises is an illusion. In Romans 6, Paul makes it clear that if you choose sin, you become enslaved. If you choose sin, soon you lose the choice. Sin becomes compelling and compulsive. Like David Roper says frequently, the penalty for sin is more sin. It begins to take over. You lose control. Now the problem is that it seems in our mind, in our imagination, it seems like it would work. If I would only do this, this would be freedom. If I would only do this, this would fulfill these needs and these longings I have. It works in the imagination. Malcolm Muggeridge said, Fiction is a better medium for evil than for good, because evil is always better in the imagination than in reality. While good is always better in reality than in the imagination. See, that's why we've got to listen To God's Word rather than to our imaginations. And if you are trying to find freedom and fulfillment through sin, wake up. Look at the hook in your nose. Manasseh woke up, he looked at the hook in his nose, and he knew what to do. He knew enough from his childhood. know how to respond. He repented. He turned back to God. And this is the heart of this story. This is the real message of this story, that you are never too far to turn. You are never too far for God to take you back, to restore you, to restore that relationship with you. See, God is always ready to heal, to rebuild, As horrible as the things that Manasseh had done. God's heart had not hardened against him. And let me tell you, if you've been running from God, and you feel like you ran too far, or you've done some things that are just too horrible for God to forgive, take a look at how God loved Manasseh. Take a look at how he treated Manasseh. His grace is sufficient for you. He will show compassion on you. He will forgive your sin. Now the New Testament tells us that the reason God can do this, even the reason He could do it in the Old Testament, is that Jesus Christ died on the cross in payment for those sins and His blood shed on the cross covers all of our sins. All you have to do is to face your sin. You can't receive the forgiveness of God unless you face your sin. Not because God isn't already holding it out. Not because God doesn't offer it. But unless you acknowledge your need, you can't accept it. See, face your sin. Turn to God. Humble yourself before Him. Cry out. Pour your heart and your needs out to Him. He'll hear you. And He'll care. Acknowledge that what Jesus Christ has done on the cross is adequate for everything that you've ever done. That His love and His blood covers all of your sin. This is the good news. That God in Christ has made a way back. So take it. It's there. Recently I was talking with a man who was having an affair and as he was called to turn away from that, that sin and turn back to God, he said, oh, there's no point. I've gone too far. I've hurt too many people. I've caused too much damage. God will never forgive me. And that sounded so humble, so broken, so contrite. But People, that's the subtlety of our pride. This is just a way to avoid facing our sin turning to God and accepting what He has done. To to refuse God's forgiveness is to call God a liar. It's to trample underfoot the blood of Jesus Christ, to say it's not adequate, it's not enough for my sin. It's to place ourselves above God as the judge, for, for ourselves to overrule, to overturn His verdict, His decision. See, none of this Is real humility, no matter how sincere you are. Again, I'm sorry to speak so strongly, but this lie ensnares so many people, it has to be said. A guy by the name of Bruce Nairmore described two different kinds of repentance like this. He said Two people are chatting over coffee, reaching for the sugar, one of them accidentally knocks his cup in the other's lap. A typical guilt reaction would be, Oh, how stupid of me. I should have known better. Look at the mess I've made. Oh, I'm so sorry. The offender continues to berate himself and his misdeed. Constructive sorrow is very different. The offender might say, I'm so sorry. Here are some napkins. I'll get the table cleaned up. And later, he might offer to pay the cleaning bill. Godly sorrow is constructive. You see, self-condemnation, as ingrained in us as it is, is counterproductive, really. It distracts from God's grace and it detracts from His glory. Now, if we face our sin, rather than hiding from it through self-pity, if we humble ourselves honestly before God, we will immediately experience freedom. Not necessarily freedom from sin, but freedom from guilt. And once our hearts are free from guilt, they are free to look outward and to begin to do something constructive. And that's what Manasseh does. Verse 14. Afterward, he rebuilt the outer wall of the city of David, west of the Gahon Spring in the valley, as far as the entrance of the fish gate, and encircling the hill of Ophel. He also made it much higher. He stationed military commanders in all the fortified cities in Judah. He got rid of the foreign gods... And removed the image from the temple of the Lord, as well as the altars he had built on the temple hill and in Jerusalem. And he threw them out of the city. Then he restored the altar of the Lord and sacrificed fellowship offerings and thank offerings on it. And he told Judah to serve the Lord, the God of Israel. See, this is the fruit of repentance. Repentance. Manasseh didn't do this because he was obligated, because somebody compelled him to do it. This wasn't penance, a way of paying God back. This was the expression of a heart set free, a heart full of gratitude for God's grace, full of love for the one who had loved him so. See, this is the joy of repentance. This is the fun of walking with God, letting him do wonderful, great, powerful things through you to love people and to help them. And this really is the story of Manasseh. That no matter how far you've gone, no matter how horrible and overwhelming the wickedness of your sin, and if you see it, any of our sins accurately, you will be astounded by its, its horror. But no matter how far you've gone, you're never too far to turn. And God has not hardened his heart against you. And he's ready to take you back and then to embrace you. And to restore you and to use you for good. No longer for destruction and ruin. Well, that's the message, the story of Manasseh. But unfortunately, there is a very sad postscript to the story of Manasseh. You see, the writers of, of Second Chronicles and of Second Kings make it very clear that it was the sins of Manasseh that destroyed the entire nation of Judah and eventually led to their exile. Even though God had restored Manasseh, even though God had begun to use him for good, he couldn't undo what he had done. And what he had done, his sin had consequences, horrible, destructive, painful consequences. And this is something we need to understand, that sin hurts, it destroys, it kills. That's why God can never condone it. He can never look the other way, act as if it doesn't matter. He can never say it's okay. It is not. It is very un-okay. The difference between tolerance and And forgiveness is incredibly important. It's a a difference, a distinction that our society has lost sight of. Tolerance says, oh, it's okay. It's no big deal. It doesn't matter. Let me ask you, does it matter to the child who's been molested or to her parents? Does it matter to the abused wife? Does it matter that people's lives have been shattered, that, that, that people's spirits are shredded, that people go through life with deep, Wounds and scars as a result of sin. It matters very much. It matters so much that God is filled with anger, with rage at sin. You see, God can't turn His back and say, Oh, it's okay. For Him to do that would be for Him to heartlessly turn His back on our misery and our pain. see, God burns with anger at sin because his heart is full of love for people and he sees what sin does to us how badly it destroys you see instead what god instead of uh, of of turning his back what god has done is he's turned his energies to making a way to forgive us A term forgiveness is often misunderstood. It does not mean to excuse. It doesn't mean to minimize. It means to let go. To let go of His anger. To let go of the penalty. To let go of guilt. See, God doesn't minimize. He doesn't excuse. In fact, it is so inexcusable. It is so horrendous and enormous that in order for Him to make a way to forgive us, to let go of the penalty, to let go of the guilt, His Son had to die. That's no small thing. There's nothing bigger in the universe. A loving God will never condone or tolerate sin. But He will forgive it. Now I've actually heard people as they were facing sin say, Well, I know it's wrong, but God will forgive me. And you know what? That is absolutely true. As shocking as it may seem, that in Christ I can do anything without losing God's love, without losing my salvation, there is nothing I can't do. And if God can forgive a man like Manasseh, man, he can forgive me anything. Do you you understand the absurdity of that? When Paul was asked the same question, "Shall we sin all the more? He said, what a stupid question. It's like me saying, if I take a meat cleaver and hack my hand off at the wrist... God will forgive me. Absolutely, He will. And God will still love me every bit as much. He will. But people, that's going to hurt like crazy. And I'm going to bleed all over. I'll probably mess up my suit and the podium. And I'll go through the rest of my life missing a hand and have to deal with that for the rest of my life. But see, God loves me. He forgives me. In fact, He would keep forgiving me if I kept hacking away a little piece at a time. And He wouldn't reject me for the pain that I'm causing Him as He walks through that stupidity with me. He would continue to walk with me and love me. But how stupid. See, and that's what sin is like. Sure, you can sin all you want. But who wants to? That's nuts. When we see sin for the horror that it is, for the damage it does to us and people we love, how could we ever want it? See, that's one of the things the Holy Spirit does for us. He enlightens us. He opens our eyes. So we, we see through the deception, the lie that sin is the key to fulfillment. And we see sin for the ugly, horrendous, destructive thing it is. And we see the wounds that sin has caused in our lives that we are still Damaged by and affected by, and worse of all, we see the sin or the, the results of sin in people we love. What we have done to them, and through that, the Holy Spirit begins to give us a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. We begin to hate sin with a passion because sin has consequence. And I tell you that not to discourage you about your past sins, sins that you may still be feeling the pain of, still be feeling the effect of, the damage of in your life. But I tell you that to warn you against taking sin casually in the future. Sin kills. It destroys. Just like Manasseh, the story of Manasseh. As much as God had done to restore him and rebuild him, he could never undo what he had done. And that affair you may be contemplating, you can never undo. And that marriage to an unbeliever is for the rest of your life. And your sexual promiscuity will affect you deeply and profoundly. Using drugs will affect your body permanently. See, realize these these. Realities. Realize these things the next time you face the opportunity to go your own way. God's grace is sufficient for you. And no matter how far you've gone, he's ready to embrace you back. God's grace is sufficient. And his desire is to restore you and renew you, to use you for good. To love people so that you might experience the joy of loving like He does. Experience the delight of being like Him. And He will even remove from your life those sins that continue to destroy and damage as you walk with Him. This is our hope. This is the good news that we base our life on. Let's pray. Lord, we... uh, rarely look at our sin, because it is too horrible, it is too frightening, too overwhelming. But Lord, this morning we want to look at it, to see it in its horror, not to be crushed, but so that we can see the beauty of your love, the extent of your grace, that there is the, the height and the depth and the width, just how wonderful you are. Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes so that we would see sin for what it is and that we would turn from it. We would humble ourselves before you and receive your forgiveness. Be freed immediately from guilt and allow our hearts to fill with the joy of your spirit as we turn outward and express that love to those around us. Again, Lord, we ask that you do these things. You've taught us your word. And now take that word and build it into our lives. I pray this in your name and because of what you have done on the cross for us. Amen.